it's a tendency that I see over and over again with data analysts, with data scientists, where they look at the data and, and what, what I hear back is restatement of the fact. So it's very comforting to tell me back what, what someone reads from the data. And usually my response to that is, you've been closer to the data. You've been analyzing through the data. Don't tell me just what's in the data, but what do you think does it mean? And, and, and often the key there is pouring in judgment. And that's a skill that many people are, are lacking in thinking, looking at data, but pouring into it the context, the context of the business, the context of the environment, and what really does it mean for us. Hello, listeners. Fahad Ahmed here, and welcome back to our series of episodes that explore Columbia Business School's key pillars of learning. They are the digital future, entrepreneurship and innovation, 21st century finance, the intersection of business and society, and climate and sustainability. In this episode, we're continuing our deep dive into the pillars, this time discussing the digital future. And on this episode, we're going to drop in on a conversation between professors Oded Netzer, Christopher Frank, and Paul Magnoni, as they discuss key points from their new book, Decisions Over Decimals, which offers a roadmap for effective decision-making when using data. Professor Netzer is CBS's Vice Dean for Research, while Christopher Frank is Vice President of Amex Insights at American Express, and Paul Mignoni is Head of Global Strategic Alliances at Google in the cloud business. Together, they teach the CBS course, Leading in a Data-Driven World, Being Fearless and Fierce with Data. And on this episode, we'll hear how data underlies most business decisions today, and why no leader can operate a successful 21st century business without the insights that data can provide. Let's join their conversation hearing why they wrote this book and their guidance for handling the wealth of data in almost every industry today. Here's Vice Dean Oded Netzer. We've noticed that there are um, there are there is a struggle there is a struggle with making decisions with data and um, part of the struggle is because people tend to think that they need to be math with in order to deal with data they need to be this Excel with in order to be able to deal with data and uh, that couldn't be far from the truth we've noticed that people believe that the skills needed to make decisions with data are not actually the the the, the right skills which led us to ask ourselves, what are the skills? Why are we having more data than we ever had, and yet decisions that don't seem to become better than they were? And just to orient your ears, here's Paul Mignoni, followed by Christopher Frank. And candidly, we have colleagues who say, how did you get to a better decision? And I think we all realize that there's a lot of waste in the business world, how decisions are made. And uh, I, for one, am fatigued by all the all the wasted time and the lack of efficiency and the lack of focus. And so what we're hoping to do is not just put out uh, a really solid work, but hopefully convert some folks into making decisions in a better way as uh, an overall group, start a new tribe. I almost think that's the problem that we're trying to, to solve. You know, how many meetings, and we're all in meetings, um, regardless of, of the company, regardless of the type of organization, that you sit in these meetings and there is, you know, no decisions or partial decisions, or you think you actually make a decision. And how often do you leave the room, you know, virtual room or not, 
and then you walk back and that decision gets walked back. And how do you actually make a decision that sticks and that people feel comfortable making? Yeah, the problem is that, that we tend to drown in data th these days. Start with a decision. Ask yourself, what is the decision I need to, to make? What data can help me make that decision? And then focus just on the data and just on, the, on that analysis as opposed to seemingly benefiting from the wealth of data. So I also think not only having a common framework, and it will enable people to work together and, and be much more effective and productive. But I think there's a, another key thing is, you know, the speed of decision making. And that is an absolutely fundamental problem we collectively have to work on. I mean, business is working faster. Data is flowing at, at a, an even greater rate in terms of volume and velocity. Yet, you know, decisions almost seem slower. So there, there's this tension that exists. And what we're trying to share are really practical lessons or framework to, to help uh, relieve that, that tension. I mean, thinking of this, this problem of speed, this problem became way worse with the availability of data because suddenly we have so much data, we feel like we, we can use it in order to increase the certainty in fact, getting to the certain decision, which is a myth. And, and we have so much data, so much way, so many ways to analyze this data, and that's a way to procrastinate, a way to delay the decision by looking for more data, by by looking at more analysis that hopefully would make us more certain with our decision making, and often it doesn't. Here's what I loved from that portion of their conversation: Ask yourself, what decisions do you need to make, and what data sets can help you make those decisions but don't let the wealth of data overwhelm or slow your decision-making. Let's skip ahead and learn about the human element in data-backed decision-making, because at some point in the process, there's a human-made decision. The question is, can this be taught? Well, here's Professor Netzer. Yeah, I mean, intuition. Intuition is almost primal. Can we teach something that's that, that primal as intuition? The theory of learning tells us that there are two dimensions to learning. There is consciousness and competence. At the lowest level of learning, we are so clueless that we are unconsciously incompetent. We don't even know what we don't know. And then maybe we are opening a book called The Decisions Over Decimals, and we, we, we see a few titles to the chapters, quantitative intuition. I still don't know what it is, but at this point, I move to be maybe a consciously incompetent. At least I know what I don't know. I start reading chapter what, number one, chapter number two, and I'm starting to become a consciously competent, meaning I'm learning new things. It's still really hard. That's why it's consciously competent. At the highest level of learning, once we keep practicing as, as we have been doing now over quite a few years, it becomes second nature. It becomes habit. It becomes intuition. So this is our path to, to move from learning something new to intuition, and we've all done that. We've all done that with with walking. It was consciously <laughs> difficult at the start. We've done most of us have done this with driving. Uh, so we, we learn these skills over and over again. We all talk about the availability of data, and we all talk about uh, being overwhelmed with, with that volume of, of information. Um, there's actually a great quote um, from Einstein that if he had to solve a problem, he would spend ninety percent on framing it and thinking about the problem, you know, and 10% on actually doing, you know, working through through a solution. And IWIC, which stands for I Wish I Knew, is a very simple technique to actually help you frame a problem. But really, what is a frame? A frame is simply you're narrowing what you're going to focus and what you're going to solve. 
And it kind of ties back to what you said earlier, Oded. Too many people see the data and they dive right in. So IWIC is this um, technique when you go in and you talk to your stakeholders, clients, colleagues. It works with fellow students if you're about to start a project. And it's a simple four-word question that's, that you ask, what do you wish you knew? And what you're trying to get out is the essential information. What do you wish you knew to move forward? If I could provide that answer to you tomorrow, end of the week, whatever it may be, but near term, what do you wish you knew to move forward? And then that also serves as a governor or a regulator on the information flow and what you have to analyze. So very quickly and very effectively, by asking this four-word question and applying this technique across um, teams, across business units, you can get down to that essential information that you need um, to move forward, as opposed to drowning in, in the information yeah. that, that exists. And I love the word wish in there because it implies permission, not answer what you already think you know, but what is it that is ruminating in the back of your mind that you don't think you can ask, but you really can. The other piece is that we layer these techniques upon each other. So we also like to talk about what happens in the decision moment and recognizing that a decision is happens when we bring together time, risk, and trust, and you triangulate on those three. So you take the output of an exercise like an IWIC and the, the very rigorous data analysis, and then you have to ask yourself from a human judgment perspective, is this information I trust? Are these people that I trust? What is the risk profile of this? What time frame do I need to make a decision in? And once you understand that, it's not an amorphous decision that is boundless, but you really zero in on a tight time frame and the parameters that matter. So you make the decision for the right people with the right conditions. I mean, one thing, the one theme that actually goes throughout the book is this theme of powerful questions. And in fact, if we go through the book, it's a sequence of questions that go, to, go towards what is the essential question, tools like iWeeks. As we get to the data analysis, how do we interrogate data? A sequence of questions. What data am I not seeing? What is the context for this data? Uh, a type of question that we ask around uh, data interrogation. What surprised me in the results? And uh, a very powerful question to get to the heart of almost any issue with data analysis, what surprised you? And finally, as we move towards the, the decision, questions like, what does it mean? What does it mean for the company? Meaning moving from what to so what to now what? And uh, these are a series of questions that involves in the, pretty much the entire sequence going from the essential question all the way to the decisions, um, which is pretty much a theme that goes throughout uh, the, the, paper, the, the book, thinking about powerful question, using questions in order to advance the, yeah. the dialogue. This is not about asking precision question and getting an answer immediately, but really opening up dialogue. If you use some of these techniques and you say, listen, I have an hour long meeting and I frame it appropriately and I set the table correctly for the right kind of conversation, what normally takes an hour, which is repetitive and you're frustrated because the meeting takes an hour and you haven't really had a, the right conversation, you condense that down into what is crystalline and clear in 10 minutes. And then you open up the next 50 minutes for real discussion. And I think that's the magic. 
opening it up for real discussion. The smartest person in the room doesn't have the answer. They actually ask the question. Why? Because a question shows one, they're deep, they're thinking very deeply uh, about the problem or data or the discussion at hand. The second thing that a question does is it, it opens up the dialogue to your point, Paul, and um, we equate questions almost to like a, a camera lens. Um, and you could, you know, open up the aperture, widen the, 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 the discussion, or then you could then zero in. And often we are the recipient of the information and we just think we have to take it in. Yet we actually, we want to engage in that discussion. We're trying to figure out when and how do we engage. Questions enable you to engage in a very meaningful way to expand that, that, that dialogue. And one of the other interesting aspects here is think about any meeting that you're in. It's summary. People are summarizing. They're often summarizing what they already know. They're summarizing what they think people want to hear, and there's not synthesis. And if you can correlate appropriately through some of the techniques that we're talking about, and you open up the dialogue for actual synthesis and real creative thought, that's the win. That's what's helpful to companies. Yeah, and it's a tendency that I see over and over again with data analysts, with data scientists, where they look at the data and, and what, what I hear back is restatement of the facts. Why? Because restatements of the facts is factual uh, by definition of the word. Factual, as long as the data are true, the, the, the facts will be true. So it's very comforting to tell me back what, what someone reads from the data. And usually my response to that is, you've been closer to the data. You've been analyzing through the data. Don't tell me just what's in the data, but what do you think does it mean? And, and, and often the key there is pouring in judgment. And that's a skill that many people are, are lacking in thinking, looking at data, but pouring into it the context, the context of the business, the context of the environment, and what really um, does it mean for us. What's clear to me from this exchange is that how we use data to ask questions to guide and encourage discussion and debate is just as important as how we use data to make decisions. The two go together. Allow your data analysis to open the aperture, as Christopher Frank suggests. Let's hear more from these three professors, but this time specifically on what they are looking for when they are hiring. I have a question directly for the two of you. You are hiring our MBAs. What do you think are the skills that are in this book that um, our MBAs are missing? What would you want to see from our MBAs uh, when you are hiring them for these yeah. positions? One thing I look for when I am interviewing is, can someone bring synthesis? And synthesis is data plus judgment. And judgment, you know, people, it, it's a bit scary at times, but I'm looking for someone to have confidence and judgment is a perspective. I think the other thing that judgment is and how do you actually demonstrate judgment? Um, there is a very simple, you know, I guess approach to do it is ask yourself, instead of just showing or talking about an example or a data uh, point from your career, your CV, your um, education, you know, tell me, so what? What does it mean? And then tell me, now what? And if you actually apply that to some of your answers um, and talk about the impact, they're starting to demonstrate that level of judgment rather than just, oh, let me just jump in and solve the problem. Those are the candidates that are giving me the thoughtful answers that I am looking for. 
and and kind of a bonus answer to, to your question, the candidates that actually ask me questions, that says a tremendous amount to me about who they are um, and how they think. And I will often create that opportunity right up in front. And I'm like, you know, this is your career. Talk about this great opportunity. Do you have any questions? And I cannot tell you how often candidates just sit there and say, no, I'm, I'm good. Versus you get those individuals to say, you know what? I actually just read this about your company last week. I would really appreciate your perspective on, on X and what it could mean for, for your competitive position. Let me tell you, that candidate is off to the races for, for me personally. Yeah, and, and what's happening when there's this free flow of questions, you're understanding the thought process. So we want to know that you can think in times when there's uncertainty. There was no textbook that described how to solve this problem. So your thought process is what matters most because we're breaking new ground every day. And the way we often, by the way, think about it here at Columbia Business School is that we, we are training our students to become chefs rather than cooks, right? A cook, you give them a recipe and they know very well how to make it, right? right. Unfortunately, the problems you're gonna face out there, right, mm -hmm. would not be the same recipes that I gave you in school. Yeah. So our goal is really to create chefs as opposed to cooks, which means teaching you this software or the other is teaching you to be a cook, right? It's the, the ability to actually face uncertainty in new situations. So I'll tell you who we're not interested in hiring, certain personas that we've talked about in class, people like Captain Obvious, who simply restates what we already know and chews up time. Or see more, someone who just wants to see more data. Regardless of what the answer is, they just want to see more data. And you know a few of these people as well. I, I, I know them. I've uh, presented to them. <laughs> um, uh, another persona, whether you're and this comes through in interviews, this comes through in meetings, um, you know, someone we affectionately call um, Billy Numbers, you know, just show, you know, give me the numbers. I want to know to the third degree or they come in with, you know, this spreadsheet, you know, and they're like, you know, six point font does exist in Excel. And I'm like, you're you're missing the big picture because there is one essential question that collectively we are all trying to answer you know, in, in businesses, you know, how do we help our organizations grow? Whether you're a nonprofit, regardless of the industry you're in, you know, how, how do we grow? How do we have greater impact? Whether it's greater impact on society, you know, greater impact on, on our business, greater impact in helping our colleagues and team members grow. And you're not going to get that from more numbers and just bringing in more, more data. So I'm actually uh, would love to share a, a real world uh, example from all the work we have done. Um, I used to uh, lead the global satisfaction measurement program in 47 geographies, um, both consumer and B2B. Tremendous data set, more data, you know, significant base sizes. Um, we could model and we did um, that, you know, nine ways to Sunday. Um, and when I was presenting this, you know, I thought I was all buttoned up. You know, I came in with the 50 page deck, um, looked at the data many different ways and we were wrapping up and it was an okay presentation. 
And the GM at the time asked me one question. He's like, Chris, anything you, you that surprised you in the data, anything that you didn't understand? And I'm like, actually, there was. And of these 47 markets, in eight of them, the data just did not follow the pattern of, of the, the, the majority. Um, you know, so I explained it away by because I couldn't explain it. And by explaining it away, I mean, I put it in the appendix and I looked, you know, at a global basis, you know, we're doing great with consumers and at a global basis, we're doing great with um, B2B customers. And he's like, what were those markets? So I went into the back of the appendix. And as I read off the markets, he leaned over to his chief of staff and they started checking off boxes. And one by one, he's like, each one of those markets that you cannot explain, and that was surprising to you, actually, we ran a uh, pilot program we did not tell anyone about. They did not want to bias the data in, in any way. And they had double digit increases. And it turns out that those eight test markets turned out to be exactly the uh, foundation for a very successful program they wound up implementing. And from that simple question, what surprised you? Opened up the dialogue, gave me permission as the analyst um, at that time to share what I didn't know and create that safe space from a simple three-word question. And then it then uh, really spawned um, a rigorous discussion, investment, and actually launch of the of a global program. So I have a story from when I was leading some business due diligence of a Silicon Valley company that my company was looking to utilize. And there was some discussion on whether we should just license their technology or perhaps buy the company. So a lot of interesting pressure around that. And in driving the business due diligence, we spent time with the company, our technologists looked and said, it's interesting, but ambivalent about it. We didn't really get a sense for the economic value of the new technology that they had and how grounded it was in reality. Could this really be applied today? So the business development lead on their side sent me a spreadsheet. And he said, listen, this is the model for the business. He said, put in however many servers, again, it was a technology base, put in however many servers you think you will use this software with, and you will model out the profitability. So I opened up the spreadsheet, every field was locked except for that one field. It's preloaded with 10,000. The assumption was that, like any greedy individual, I would go up from 10,000 and say, oh, well, 10,000 is profitable. How profitable is 100,000? How profitable, what's the return on investment on having 500,000 servers using this technology? Because it all looked great. So I put in 500,000 to see where it went, but I also put in one and zero. Amazingly enough, regardless of what number I put in, it was a wildly profitable company. Yes, with zero servers, it was a wildly profitable return on investment. And that took five minutes. So five minutes later, I called him up and I said, either your spreadsheet is broken or your company has a problem. 
And I said that in a provocative way because our instincts led us to believe that there was something that they were withholding. And that led to a whole series of other conversations where we really did discover what was wrong. So it is that pressure testing, not taking for granted, here are numbers that I want you to look at, not anchoring on what they're saying, but really looking at parameters that matter for you in a practical sense. Why do I want to put in one in a field like that? Because if I can understand the unit of one and what that means to my company, then I can do my own math. I can extrapolate out, this is what it means to drive the business the way we want to drive the business. Being prepared as MBA students, as working professionals, and even asking that of yourself will really enable you to make sure that you're well-prepared, you have a well-thought-out strategy, and demonstrate mastery of your recommendation. And one way, actually, in which Amazon is doing this is something called PRFAQ, which is very consistent with this approach that we talk about, about working backwards, working from the, the decision back to the data. Um, these PRFAQs at Amazon are uh, these documents that, that someone writes whenever they have a new idea, whenever, whenever they want to innovate, whether it's for external product or for internal product. Uh, it includes one page which says, the year is 2024. Amazon just introduced that product. We are actually today, but projecting into the future. What is the problem we solve? What, do, what is the need we solve? Um, what is the customer need? Why is it uh, uh, good for Amazon? And then there would be a quote uh, from a customer, a quote from someone at Amazon, why this is something we should be doing. And then come the pressure testing that you talk about. Because in addition to the one-pager, by the way, very strict one-pager uh, press release, again, a simulated press release, and then three pages of frequently asked questions. And this is the place place where um, you are expected as the, the champion of the idea to pressure test your own model, asking, for example, why it's a good idea. You need to put in writing as a champion, think about how smart that a question is, why this is not a good idea. You force the champion to pressure test the point of why is it not a good idea? How are we going to make money on this thing? Why, why didn't my competitor do it? Or why, didn't, uh, uh, why would the customer actually need it? All of the elephants in the room, all of these questions that are likely to be asking a question in a, in a meeting, you're expected already to put in writing in such document. And of course, it's a living document that keep uh, updated as more questions uh, come about. As you can tell by now, all three professors come with a depth of knowledge and real life experiences. Listening to them speak, I wondered how any one person, let alone all three of them, could synthesize all of the insights into a book. The answer lies in working as a high-performing team where every member does his or her part. Here's Christopher Frank. I think we have to really put the book in, into context. The book is an output of teaching this material, one at Columbia for the past seven years. And it's really that intersection of, of theory and practice. So we're not only teaching on at Columbia, you know, both Paul, Oded, and myself actually apply these every day. One of the first keys is check your ego out the door, and we're all in this together. And we had to accept that up front. And that was easy to accept in writing the book because we have been teaching together for seven years. But I think the other thing that we recognize about each other is, although we're teaching this material, and we have been for seven years, we approach any given problem three different ways. 
So I take very much a, a systems thinking point of view. I take the data point of view. <laughs> yeah, and I serve as that, you know, almost connector or bridge between the analysis and data and the business issue. So when you pull all that together, then you have an interesting story to tell. That interesting story is what our students look and say, wow, there's three of you and there's a cohesive view. That's what we tried to capture. And I think when, when approaching these, uh, particularly coming from different views, uh, it can be a limitation, it can be an opportunity. And I think we have taken the opportunity of the different views and complementing each other, bringing the theory and the practice together. And a lot of the, much of the way in which we've done it was really a jazz as opposed to a linear thinking of, oh, we're going to have Paul on char in charge of that and Chris on charge of that. It was much more of a jazz. I write a sentence, Paul adds something from a, an example that he had and a Chris brings it, bring the data into a, into the business problem. And, and, and sometimes we even take each other's roles, right? I mean, I mean, I would say to Paul, oh, this is too academic, right? Or, 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 uh, or Paul would tell, would tell me, right? I mean, this thing is, is doesn't, we need, we need to bring more of the theory into it. So, uh, Doing a jazz, I think, was, was part of what's important here. I have a question for you, Oded. When we started the project, uh, I recall asking you, did you feel that we should write something that is of the academic rigor of a peer-reviewed type of work or something that is more accessible from a business perspective? And clearly, we lean to the latter. Why did you make that choice? I mean, I made this choice. Uh, there was a more personal reason and the more uh, um, more purpose reason, I would say. The more personal reason was I've done the former many times and I really wanted to do the latter, right? Uh, the, 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 the real answer, which is a more uh, the purpose reason there is we've been teaching that for this for seven years, seeing um, such great reaction, feeling the impact that we have made on, on people in terms of making better decisions um, and leaning towards that, realizing we actually can do something that, that has an impact on leaders that would be picked up by leaders. Uh, that was both an, uh, something new to me, but also uh, an exciting, but also possibly of, of, a, of a different level of, of impact. One of the skills that, that we have in the book talk, when we talk about quantitative intuition is this muscle, this ability to go up and down from business problem down to the data and analysis only when needed and back up. Uh, there are kind of two types of extreme leaders on this on this scale from the data to analysis to the business problem. There is the 30,000 30, feet type manager. It's the manager that feels extremely comfortable up there at the 30,000 feet, uh, always focused on the eight ball, on the business problem, never cares about the data. In fact, it's a type of leader, uh, leader that we tend to talk about as the one that uses a uh, data or analysis, uh, like a drunken man use a lamp post for support rather than illumination. They already know the answer. They couldn't care less about the data. At the other extreme, we have this other type of extreme manager that I'm sure um, all of you have met that manager. You send them a 1,000 cell Excel uh, sheet and they're going to look at every single cell in the Excel as if the goal of the organization is to produce perfect Excel sheets, right? Um, of course, the problem with that leader is that they, they don't see the forest for the trees. They get lost in, in, in this Excel as opposed to solving the, the problem. And the key is how do we learn to uh, move up and down in this elevator? How do we pressure test a model with things like 
taking the model to our comfort zone, to places where we have good intuition, like zero or one or, or infinity. Uh, these are some of the skills that we talk about um, to move up and down this elevator from problem to data, not forgetting about the data, but never forgetting about the problem we're trying to solve. You know, the amount of data in this data flow is not going to decrease. In fact, it's going to increase and probably at an exponential rate. Also, the challenge and the pressure to make better decisions, smarter decisions, faster decisions is also going to continually be there and also as be asked of each one of us. You know, so this challenge of increasing data and the need and desire to make faster, smarter decisions is not going away. Yeah, I mean, my thought on maybe the, the, the key learnings from here is, as we are thinking about data and, and data analysis, don't forget the importance of judgment. Judgment would always stay important in, 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 the, in analyzing data, and specifically uh, judgment with respect to what is the problem we are trying to solve. Uh, make sure to spend time as, as it, with thinking about what is the problem before we go and jump into the data because there is the urge to go and, and look at the results. Make sure to define the problem as you're getting into the data, interrogate the data, but not so much from a statistical point of view, but rather from, does it make sense? Does it fit with, a, with everything that I know? What are the surprises of the data? And finally, the judgment comes in the form of synthesizing the information. Not just what does the data, data tell me, but what does it mean and what are we gonna do about it? Decision-making is a team sport. So if one were to take our course, read this book, adopt all of it, and you're the only one that's doing that in your organization, it's still an uphill climb. So the key is to build a tribe. Find that first follower, find that second one, start to find folks, and build some momentum within your organization for people that are intolerant of the waste of time, the waste of resources, and crave techniques to cut through that, techniques to move faster, techniques to open up dialogue, which doesn't necessarily mean to move faster, but to have the real conversation that's critical for your business. That's not a single person activity. Find your tribe, and ideally, we're helping to find the tribe. That's our episode. Quick closing words from me. There's an inherent pressure the wealth of data in business places on people to be, as Professor Netzer said, a math whiz. And as someone who has never been that, it was so rewarding to hear that that's not a requisite for today's business leaders. Be an expert if that's what you want, but more importantly, be inquisitive about what the data is telling you. Practice judgment, pressure test by asking questions. For the majority of all current and future leaders, this is what will help us lead in a data-driven world. To learn more about how this comprehensive new program brings together faculty, business leaders, and students to explore digital transformation across industries, visit gsb.columbia.edu. And stay connected to all that's happening on this show and at Columbia Business School by following us on social media. You can find us at Columbia underscore biz. Be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss our upcoming episodes. And if you can, 
leave us a comment and a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thanks for listening.